This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode... We're joined by Hannah Witten. Really excited to be here. We talk about how young Hannah was every parent's nightmare. I asked them, I was like, so I'm thinking about having sex, are you going to give me the talk? <laughs> like, <laughs> Sex and disability. From a, like a personal journey of me like, <laughs> and my sex life with my condition, it's been really eye-opening. And getting turned on out of the blue. Oh, actually, wouldn't mind fondling their genitals. That's a really weird phrase, but that's what came to my mind. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and as ever, I'm joined by accredited sex and relationship therapist, Kate Campbell. Hello, Mum. Hello, Diggs. Every episode, Mum and I give sex and relationships a good going over with a guest and this week we're very delighted to be joined by Hannah Witten. Hannah is a fellow podcaster, author and YouTuber on her various platforms. She makes content based mostly around sex, relationships and sexual health. You go to her YouTube channel, you can find all sorts of things on there like videos on sex toys to sex in your period to open relationships to different kinds of contraception and first date ideas. It's, it's great. And since Hannah is so great at telling people all about different sex things, it's inspired me to take another dip into your book, Mum, and find another thing I want to ask you about so we can educate the people as well. So today, <laughs> Educate the people? Yeah, come on. It's got to that point now. You make We've it sound to... so grand. Maybe that's what we should call this segment, Educate the People. Okay. Today, the word I've found to educate the people, people. Yeah. is vaginismus. <laughs> Mum, what is vaginismus? Oh, it's horrible. Um, Vaginismus is when the muscles around the vaginal opening tighten up so much that you can't get anything into the vagina. It's very uncomfortable. Some people have it all their lives and some people it develops. And sometimes in relation to other conditions like vulvodynia, where an area of the vulva becomes very sensitive and a bit painful. Vaginismus and vulvodynia. Sorry, do go on. Amazing names. Interestingly, people with vaginismus often are very sexually active, enjoy a really healthy sex life, are orgasmic, and often have really lovely partners, but just have this one problem. So it's not that they don't like sex or anything like that. And sometimes the issue is that they have a fear developed about intercourse because they've or penetration because they've heard horror stories or because they've had a bad experience or because 
they actually have a quite a tough hymen. Now, for most people, the little bit of skin that's across the vaginal opening is very stretchy and it's not an issue really. But for some people, it is a bit tougher and they can experience a lot of pain if it's pushed. So they're the kinds of people who will tend to have a lot of pain attempting to insert a tampon or something like that. So they can even have problems with that sort of thing. Mm. And it's very difficult. The problem with all these genital pain conditions is that it's very difficult to be taken seriously. So sometimes people spend years going backwards and forwards to the GP and even specialists, gynaecologists and things without getting any help. So you have to be persistent. Also, you know, the the alternative is to go straight to a sex therapist. So it could be an underlying condition that causes vaginismus, but it also could just be uh, mental. What would be the sort of thing that people would say to relieve you of this Well, what people tend to say is things that don't help, like just relax, Mm -hmm. you know, just um, it's more difficult than that. I mean, some people are very reassured by having an examination that works really well. Mm -hmm. But you can't examine somebody if they're in incredible pain and tightened up. You need to do it under anaesthetic. And as you can imagine, most doctors are reluctant to Mm -hmm. use an anaesthetic when there's no real medical reason. Personally, I think this is a great medical reason to use an anaesthetic because people are so scared. And once they've been told there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, everything's fine, they feel a lot better. Mm. But, you know, it's not always possible to get that. So there's all sorts of exercises you can do to help as well as checking your attitude towards sex and relationships. I mean, sex therapy does tend to work well, but it isn't always really, really quick. It's not mm. an overnight job. But, I mean, if, if it's an issue that you've had for some time, it's well worth investing in. I would definitely say if this is your problem, see your GP as soon as possible because you're probably in for quite a long journey getting notice taken of you. So start as soon as you can. Don't wait until, you know, the week before your wedding or something. Just do something about it as soon as you can. Because quite often people manage pretty well. You know, they manage well without penetrative sex and have a really healthy sex life. But then when they want to have a baby, they think, oh, this is going to be really difficult if Mm. I don't get this fixed. Well, at the end of the show, I'm going to have more questions for you just like that when we open our mailbox and take a look at what you guys have been sending in and asking mum and accredited sex and relationship therapists by sending your emails to podcasts at hatchet.com and using the hashtag RealSexEDU. I'll read some of those to mum and she'll answer them after our wonderful chat with Hannah Witten, in which I began by asking her what her sex education was like. Yeah, I was born in 92, so I just feel like I just need to place my age Mm. in, like, when I was at school and stuff. But, yeah, I had, like, some sex ed from my parents because my parents were pretty open, but most of it came from school and most of it was, here's how not to get pregnant, here's how not to get an STI. Mm. We put condoms on test tubes. Yes, Mm. thank you. That's what my school did. Whenever I say that, people are like, that's so weird. Why didn't they get bananas or anything? They cost money. They cost money. Yeah, that's the thing. I think just test tubes. Yeah, they were just like, this is what we already have. But yeah, yeah, all of that kind of like sex ed was given by the school nurse. And then I also remember an STI class being given by my geography teacher. Oh, wow. (laughs) The the STI one was really... 
like traumatizing put the fear into you yeah and that i know like doesn't work but mm. it like created a huge stigma in my head like i just became really negative when it came to stis which did not help my like perception of people or like really? reducing the stigma around it as well Ugh. oh so so yeah. so when you became sexually active were you terrified of getting them or when you say when are people that you knew who may have got them you were yeah. a bit like about them yeah and I, I really like annoyed at my past self for that but i know that it was 100 percent that one sex ed class that mm. i had that like instilled that fear mm. and like disgust in mm. me because they showed us pictures of genitals that had had stis but that had gone untreated mm. so they really just like went for it with just like graphic pictures really extreme cases and are just mm. like if you have sex without a condom this is going to happen to you and yeah i definitely like definitely instilled the fear in me i was such a safe sex nerd did they teach you about normal discharge and thrush and things like that? No. Anything that you might know? <laughs> nothing sort of useful that was likely. I came out of it like knowing how to use a condom, mm. knowing, well, not knowing, thinking that if you got an STI, you were stupid. Mm. Like I genuinely had that perception of people like, oh, you're such an idiot. Yeah. Like, no, like there are so many different reasons why someone might not use a condom or their condom like doesn't work for whatever reason. And a lot of it just comes down to the fact that there is a stigma and a lack of education. Mm. Um, and mm. it's not their fault. Yeah, someone <laughs> described, I think they, someone described chlamydia to me as the common cold of, you know, it's really common. These things are just like the flu or colds yeah. and stuff. But even now, I'm sure if I asked most of my friends, if they knew anyone that ever had an STD, whether they had recovered or not or whatever, you know, they'd be like, oh, I don't want to even think about that. I know so many people who've had STIs and mm. it was not the situation of all of the images that I was shown yeah. in school. It was yeah. not that situation. I'm glad that we're talking about this just because I feel like this is something we haven't really touched on at all on the podcast. I think that's a really good message to get across. Like with a lot of these things... I mean, luckily in this country, you can go and get a lot of them sorted out. It hopefully mm -hmm. reinstills that, okay, you should be safe. I mean, you describe yourself as a safe sex nerd, which I suppose in some yeah, ways is quite good to be. But in school, like, my personality is like teacher's pet goody two-shoes. Like, I'm such a <laughs> yeah. rules follower. Yeah. But other people are a bit more rebellious than me. And like, that's mm. fine. Yeah. It's just about like having those information and having the tools in order to be able to like have those conversations and communicate mm. with sexual partners. And also being instilled a sense of like body autonomy and resilience so that you feel capable to make those decisions for yourself mm -hmm. i was just like oh i best do the good thing don't want to get in trouble <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah which is very interesting because in some ways the fact that you are who you are and you do what you do i think a lot of people would say that isn't the goody two shoes you know <laughs> you're, you're you're going out you're Maybe talking not. about sex and relationships and so when did that happen? When did you start making videos and content that's based around sex and relationships? And how yeah. did that come about? Why? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, um, yeah. So I started making YouTube videos when I was 19. Mm. And originally they weren't about sex. I was just like one of those lonely teenagers on the internet who like watched uh -huh. YouTubers and was like, oh my God, they look so cool. Yeah, I want to be yeah. friends with them. I <laughs> guess I should start making videos. But then also whilst I was spending a lot of time on YouTube watching videos, that was where I discovered sex ed YouTube and people talking openly about sexuality, all of these topics that I was like, hang on, 
why didn't I know about this? Mm. <laughs> and sex was something that I think I was always really comfortable talking about, even if I didn't like have all of the knowledge, I was fascinated by it and, you know, just enjoyed like gossiping with my friends and like yeah. talking about sex and like yeah. doing all that. Like I wasn't shy about it. Mm, mm. And so as I was making YouTube videos and I was growing a small audience, I could see that they were mostly young women. And I was like, well, I want to use this platform that I have for good and I want it to like benefit the world and like give back what is the thing that I'm passionate about? What is the thing that I feel like I've got knowledge on? And I was like, mm. sex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, like mm. that attitude that I had then, because now I'm like, years later, I'm like, oh my God, I knew nothing then. <laughs> like, yeah, but that yeah. confidence of like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny you talk about the sex education side of YouTube. If you go into YouTube long enough, you know there's all these different communities on there. But yeah. when I think of sex education YouTube, I think of one person and that's you. So oh. I can't, it's, it's strange that to me that there was there's ever any, anything beyond yeah. yourself because you 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 know you're yeah you're so big in that. In so that when I first started watching YouTube the only people who were making sex ed content were in the US that I was watching. Right. Yeah. So I yeah. I was I'm going to try and like confidently say this I think I was the first person to be making sex ed content on YouTube who was based in the UK. So that's probably why I know you so well. <laughs> that and the fact that you're making great videos and Thank to you. such a big audience. Do you think, though, part of that then, because you referenced it earlier, do you think part of the fact that you were confident and happy to talk about sex with your friends, I mean, it is fun to talk about, let's be real, it mm-hmm. is great to gossip and stuff, but also to educate and stuff, do you think that was partly down to the sex ed you received from your parents? Because you mm. said you've got a little bit of that. Do you think it was because that sort of normalised it and you were like, oh, you know, it's no big deal? Yeah. Whilst I didn't necessarily get the information from them I definitely got that attitude of normalizing these conversations and confidence in yourself we were a very like nude household I say we like my parents would just walk around naked and it would be fine like obviously once me and my sister got to teenage years we were like oh no 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 which is like a normal part of being a teenager like wanting that privacy and stuff but we had a bit of a reputation amongst my friends who'd like come around for dinner after school where one of my friends was like, careful, if you go around to Hannah Witten's house for dinner, her parents like to talk about penises at the dinner table. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just because like, it was always done in like kind of humour and in jest. So it was never this topic that I ever felt scared to approach. Mm. And actually, I remember when I was like 15 years old, I'd had a boyfriend for a while and me and him were talking about having sex for the first time. Mm. And my parents hadn't like given me the talk even though like I now know that it's not one talk, it's like continuous talks forever until the day you die. Yes. But at the time, I like, I think it was from like TV shows and media and stuff. I had convinced myself that the talk was a rite of passage and it was an event that happened mm. in your life. The same way as like getting a period. It was like, you get your period, that's the whole thing, but also you have to receive the talk from your parents. Mm. That was how I thought it happened. And I remember my mum likes to have long baths and that's the time that you go and sit in the bathroom with her and have like deep conversations with my mum. And so I went into the bathroom one day when she was having a bath and I think my dad was there as well. Or maybe I asked my dad, I was like, dad, can you come with me? I need to talk to you, mum. <laughs> yes. Family re- meeting, family meeting, come on. But I literally it. remember I asked them, I was like, so I'm thinking about having sex. Are you going to give me the talk? <laughs> like, Oh my <laughs> God. That's amazing. I literally was like, is there anything you want me to know? And they were like, yeah. Uh, if you're if you're ready and like use a condom, like are you good? And, and that was, they were just like, what the fuck? 
And you were like, Dad, I knew all of that already. That's not helpful for me. This <laughs> I is was rubbish. like, oh, okay, I'm ready then. Great. Yeah, I like the idea that, yeah, you're with your boyfriend at the time and he was like, oh, do you want to have sex? You're like, I think I'm ready, but let me just check with my parents <laughs> first if I am. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to ask mum and dad. <laughs> so that was your sex education early-ish. And now mm. I suppose you are this big sex educator. I mean, <laughs> I guess you get a lot of questions. Do you have the same sorts of things crop up or have you noticed any trends? Oh, yeah. The biggest trend mm. is a version of am I normal? Mm. Yeah, whether their yeah. bodily functions are normal, whether the sexual fantasies that they have are normal, whether their sexuality is normal, whether the kind of sex that they're having is normal. And we should just ban the word normal, honestly. What a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Because mm. the things that are normalised, if we think about like the grander narratives that we tell ourselves about sex through what we hear on the playground, but then also just like in the media and TV shows and these things that just trickle down to us and we're like, where did, where did I get that idea? Mm. But the things that are normalised is things like having an insane sexual connection with someone without ever having to talk to them about mm. sex. It's just like two bodies coming together and it's so passionate, but they never say a word to one another about what they enjoy. That's yeah. completely normalised. And then mm. sex three times a week means that you have a successful, healthy sex life. That's what's also completely normalised. It's just mm. like, okay, so everyone is out here looking at all of these things that we see as normal and going, I don't relate to that and comparing themselves to a normal that is a bit shit, honestly. Doesn't exist. Yeah. 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 And I mean, honestly, sex therapy is all about getting people to forget all those things. One of the, mm. the things is a is this sort of predetermined script, which no yeah. one tells you, but there is this sort of sexual script that like, I feel like a lot of people have. 100%. And so we all just stick so rigidly to it. And then people sort of come away and think to themselves, now, why don't I enjoy sex that much? Yeah. You know? And I can't work <laughs> I out. Was... They're like, well, I must be weird because everyone's script says I should enjoy this and I'm not enjoying it. Like, why? Yeah. I was in a webinar the other day about different sexual functions and stuff. And one of the things that the instructor said was, do they have low desire or are they just having bad sex? Right. Mm. Are they just having bad sex? And so when they think about sex, they don't have like positive memories or positive reinforcements. And so, of course, they wouldn't like necessarily have a high libido because their reference for sex is just like mediocre. That's genius. I don't think people think about that enough. And that's why I think Mm -hmm. another thing that you have said before as well is a lot of it is exploring on your own. So then you Mm -hmm. can find out what you like and then you can communicate that to someone else. Because I think a lot of people, they don't feel like they're sort of allowed to. Particularly a lot of girls that I know are like, that's not very ladylike. I'm not allowed to have fun on my own, enjoy myself. I'm not allowed to masturbate, all those sorts of things. I'd completely internalised that as a teenager. Completely. I'm not surprised as the goody two-shoes, you know? Mm. I'm not surprised. I was more than happy to have conversations with my guy friends Mm. about their wanking habits. They would, you know, talk about how far their jizz went. And I was just like, oh, this is totally normal, lol, 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 banter. (laughs) And then when it came to, like, I remember when I was 14 and my mum turned around and said to me, it was just like, you're masturbating, right? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Like, and I wasn't because mm. I'd honestly, like even in a household where my mum was clearly saying it's totally fine and normal, I'd completely, like you said, just was like, that's not for me. Yeah. 
Girls don't do that. That's it. Girls can't do that. Or they feel like they can't because they have this thing. Again, this script that we're all told, and it's particularly for women and girls, that they are not allowed to do this thing. Or they feel like they can't talk about it. In sex therapy, you do see the couples separately for history taking. And when you talk to them about masturbation, they often say their partner doesn't do it. They mm. both of them. The, oh, if it's a straight wow. couple, the man and the woman. I mean, with gay couples, they Denial. usually yeah, exactly, yeah, I know. Yeah. They both say, and of course, the other one says, "Yeah, three times a week, or yeah, every day, or twice a day, or something." Uh. And they they've got not a clue. And I think that's wow. really interesting because you'd think you've been together for twenty years. How come you don't talk about these things? It's extraordinary. It's so interesting to me, like the stigma around like masturbation in a relationship, because mm. we assume that oh, if you are having sex with somebody else. And you're not going to need to masturbate because all your sexual needs will be fulfilled. And it's like, no, that's mm. not true. And like, it doesn't take away from the sexual relationship that you have with somebody else. Of course not. With me and my partner, there's like this interesting dynamic where I love talking about masturbation, mm. right? And so like, I'll say things to him like, oh, I had a great rank the other day. Like there was this fantasy and like this thing happened and I used this toy and it was really exciting. And he's just like, okay, cool, great, great love. Like (laughs) happy for you. But then I will say to him, I'm like, I'm nosy. And also I kind of find those conversations kind of sexy where I want to know what he does when he masturbates I'm like oh tell me like what kind of porn were you watching and like what do you do and like where in the house were you and he's just like I don't feel comfortable Mm. talking about this with you and that was a real like wake-up call to me I was just like oh actually like we can have healthy boundaries yeah (laughs) like Mm. everyone's boundaries are different and for him like we can talk about masturbation together but when it comes to the detail he's like that's private that's for me and I have to kind of be like okay that's fine. Yeah. That's great. Do, do you know what? I think sometimes it's not a good idea to share sexual fantasies because when you say them out loud, they're so ludicrous. Yeah, it, they really are. It takes all the fun out of it. Yeah. If somebody else is going, well, that would never really happen, would it? But, I mean, the, your partner might critique your fantasy. So and you're I'm, like, no, that was my go-to. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, that's my best one. And now you've ruined it. You have to come yeah, up with more always, material. Yeah. When it comes to role play fantasies, you got to be so careful because mm. it is beautiful in your yeah. head. It is the best it could be. Mm. And then you bring an actual other human being into the scenario and it might let you down. The way that I think about sexual fantasies and like solo sex in general is that it is the safest form of sex Mm. physically and also emotionally because those fantasies that you're having you are a hundred percent in control Mm. of those fantasies and they're not really happening the moment that you bring in somebody else you can't control somebody else's behavior you can't control what they do in your head you're the director and and the script writer and you're like pulling all of the strings but as soon as you involve somebody else ultimately no matter how much of a conversation you have beforehand about how it goes, you ultimately do not control what they do. Exactly. But if it's co-created, on the other hand, yeah. uh, you're mm-hmm. discovering, as you say, you're exploring, you're discovering as you go along and you have safe words and and a bit of a script, but it's evolving for both of you at the mm. same time, which is much more exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can wear a policeman's hat or something as well if you like dressing up. <laughs> 
mean, one of the great things about you as well is that you're very interested in hidden disability, which is so important. And people feel very, very stigmatised if there's anything that makes them at all different. As you say, what is supposed to be normal isn't. But if you have anything that you could actually hang a real peg of different on, then it's a million times worse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've had my eyes open since like my surgery and stuff into the whole world of disability and looking at the intersections of sex and disability Mm. and there's so much extra stuff that disabled people have to consider when it comes to or potentially depending on what their disability is with their sex lives and the more I think about the things that if I was like okay for a disabled person who's wanting to have sex what tools do they need right they need to have excellent communication right They need to maybe broaden their definition of sex if some things aren't going to be physically possible. I think it's Dan Savage that said, like, if we broaden our definition of sex, you have more sex. Mm. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. So then we can make that three times a week. Fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But Mm. there are all of these (laughs) things like being more creative and like problem solving. And I'm like, hang on, all of these things will also make non-disabled people's sex lives way better. Mm, yeah. <laughs> if we broaden our idea of like what sex is because we are taught like a real sex going the whole way, fourth base, final base is oh. penis and vagina, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone is in a partnership or not every sexual interaction has a penis and a vagina. Not mm. everyone is even into that, even if those body parts are available to them. Mm. And yeah, it's just opened my eyes a lot to like, oh, if we're not serving disabled people in terms of sex education, then we're letting everybody down as well. Like It narrows things down. If all you think of sex is penis and vagina, then you there's hardly any sex available, is there? I mean, when it right. comes down to it. And I mean, when, you know, what, what sex therapists try and do is to get people to be thinking about sex or have sex available to them all the time, even if you just have a little memory of what you did the night before mm. or look forward to what you're going to do later or send a little text to somebody you love or just someone who's hot. You can, you've can you got sex available all the time and you don't have to close it down and you don't have to act on it, but it's there and it's available to you and that's that's the yeah. way we should all be. That's yeah. so true, especially like the that feeling of not worrying about acting on it because mm. I feel like so many people think that if you're having a passionate kiss, then yeah. in the back of your head, you're like, oh, this means that they want sex mm. and I'm not really in the mood. But like, just let the kiss be a kiss. Enjoy exactly. what you're enjoying. Right. Yes. And that can yes. be like a really pleasurable and exciting thing. And actually, if you allow yourself to relax into that and just enjoy the moment of that kiss, maybe it doesn't go anywhere. And you mm. can be like, that was an epic kiss. That was great. Mm. Or maybe because you are in that more relaxed state of mind, more feelings arise and you're like oh actually wouldn't mind fondling their genitals that's a really weird phrase but that's what came to my mind but yeah but maybe maybe it's just not the moment and you you can certainly rain check it and say oh i really want to fondle Mm -hmm. your genitals later absolutely yeah but the oven's beeping yeah, exactly. So, you know, exactly. Exactly. and that's not a euphemism. The oven is actually beeping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, literally, yeah. Yeah, the sink saver flowing, or the baby's yeah. crying, or whatever, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But I just want yeah. to quickly uh, go back a little bit to talk more about your surgery and what mm. was the background with that? What happened there? Yeah. So I have ulcerative colitis, which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease, and I've had it since I was seven. I've had 
flare-ups here and there. And then I was in remission for 10 years. And then when I was 25, just out of the blue, severe flare-up, hospitalized, and I had to have emergency surgery to remove my colon. And so now I have a stoma and I have to wear a stoma bag. So like shitting into a bag, basically, that whole shebang. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. and then also during that year, because I had to have the emergency surgery, it was open surgery. And then I had to have another emergency surgery because of complications a few months later. So for most of 2018, I was, as well as like getting used to having a stoma bag Mm. um, and having that new impairment, but also I was temporarily mobility impaired because the surgery meant that like I couldn't really walk or stand up Mm. for long periods Mm. of time. So... Yeah, it was really eye-opening. And as somebody who was already talking about sex online, and then I kind of like had this really severe and life-changing thing happen to me and came back to the internet and was like, oh, hi guys, this thing happened. And obviously loads of people are like, how's this impacting your sex life? Which yeah. I don't really see as nosy questions because of what I do. I'm like, I invite it. I invite those questions. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. But I wouldn't recommend asking disabled people about how they have sex if you do not know them (laughs) but yeah and so it just kind of like opened my world a bit to kind of like oh I have been making sex ed content for years and I've never really touched on how that intersects with disability until it affected me personally and that's just how society works as a whole like we often ignore disabled people from conversations around sex Mm. unless it's about us unless it's about our partner so yeah that just sent me down this rabbit hole of learning from other disabled people and learning about sex and disability. I mean, it's such a broad topic. Obviously, every Mm. disability is different and then every person with said disability will experience that differently. But yeah, it's been really eye-opening from like a personal journey of me like Mm. (laughs) and my sex life with my condition. But then also just being like, oh, hang on. I never talked about this before. And that was a blind spot that I had. Right. Uh, Well, it's got to that time, the end of the podcast, when we like to ask our guests, how was it for you? And was it good for you too? (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's no problem at all. No problem at all. I mean, I feel, as I say, I feel like at the beginning of this podcast, I knew I was going to be the one who's going to be educated here. And that is absolutely the case. So usually we we like ask guests, we're like, oh, do you feel like you've learned? And they're like, yeah, I've learned loads from your mum and stuff. But I mean, I feel like you guys are the one who's teaching me. This was collaborative. Yeah. We co-created. I was thinking Diggs was saying over Christmas he wanted to make a gingerbread house but then I was watching some of your films and thinking we should make some vulva cakes yeah that's what we should do let's do that we could make some penis cakes as well that would be so much fun Um, I also have made genital biscuits I'll send you the link there's a place online where you can get like cookie cutters that are like different rude body parts. Oh, wow. oh no, that would be fun. Oh my! Th- yeah. I mean, this is—I hadn't got a mum a present yet. You've just completely oh, saved me. There we go. Oh, Merry Christmas, mum. That's brilliant. What a good idea. Exactly. What a pleasure to meet you. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I've you been too. watching your videos. I can't tell you for how long. Ages. Like uh, definitely, oh, definitely like you. six years ago minimum. So it feels it Amazing. feels so cool to have you here on our podcast. Oh, so yeah, yeah. We're, thank you so much. It's been great. Love that. No, cool. So good to meet you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it really is. Bye. 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 It's the mailbag. Send Kate your queries to podcastahatch.com. It's the mailbag. Send Kate your queries. Podcast at Hatch with two T's. Hello there. I have a query for Kate. I would like to know when the 
Education Mailbag starts. The Real Science Education Mailbag starts right now. Thank you. Thank you so much to Hannah Whitten for speaking to us. Isn't she the best? Oh, she, that was wonderful. She is so great. I mean, she's doing so much to educate the people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, genuinely, I would say she is one of the most, if not the most influential yeah. sex educators for young people in the UK. Absolutely. Last time I checked, I think she had well over 600,000 YouTube subscribers, 200,000 followers on Twitter. Go check her out, guys. Mm. She's great. Oh, she's and she's lovely. What more could you ask for? Oh, nothing. Right, Mum, it's time for some questions. And looking at them, they look like they could do with some expert opinion. They look like they need an accredited sexual relationship sexpert to answer them. And guess what? We've got exactly that, haven't we? We have. Perfect. (laughs) Mum, the first question we have today is from Susan. And Susan says, Xmas is coming. Xmas. I picked up on that as well. Xmas is coming up. And this year, I am dreading it more than ever. We can't agree which two other households to have over. For those people outside the UK, there's a current thing where you're only allowed to have... Three households. Three households. And also, it's Xmas, please. We're in Susan's world now. We can't agree which two other households to have over and have already started rowing about that. Mm. My mother-in-law is very critical of me, and so I'm treading on eggshells the whole time. The worst bit is that my husband always gets drunk and noisily frisky, and I really don't want sex when there are people in the house. As well as our guests, the kids are always about at night looking for Santa. What should I do? Oh, (laughs) that's really cute. It's really cute, and um, I love I love noisily frisky. Mm. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Although I'm sure I'm sorry, Susan. um, I'm sure it's a real problem. Um, Again, this is. I, I mean, I would say this about all Christmas dilemmas, whatever they are. You need to plan. It's no good crossing your fingers and hoping it'll be okay this year you need to make plans and think about what you're going to do to stop what went wrong last year happening again and of course it's so much more difficult this year because this is our one opportunity to get together with somebody and so there's so much riding on it and mm. there's so much chance of disappointment that I think we all have to be a bit kind to ourselves and think we've got so much riding on this we have to be aware of being disappointed so I think talk about it beforehand talk about what you're going to do if one of you feels frisky and the other one is just um, embarrassed and finding it awkward I mean it isn't sexy if you're terrified that you're going to be overheard that's not sexy and of course Mm. if your partner feels a little bit tipsy, then they're just going to not care. So you need to talk about this before they get tipsy and say, if you come on to me when you're drunk, don't expect me to respond. We're not going to do anything. But I have to say, do think about sex when you're sober. It can be a lot of fun if you have to be quiet. It can be super duper fun and really giggly. So maybe consider that. God. Oh, well, sorry. I can't believe this, but do go on. Yeah, why can't you? Well, I don't know. I mean, Susan having sex with her husband at Christmas while everyone's running around, it's sober in the day. I mean, that seems insane. I mean, it seems like great fun, but maybe that's fine. That's fine. Well, it, I mean, it depends on what's possible, doesn't it? Yeah. And re- remember that the relatives can only come over for five days. That's the most you have to endure. <laughs> So that's um, what I was going to say. I mean, so so you can say, look, I don't want to have sex with you during when when yeah. they're around, but let's you know have sex afterwards or oh, before, yeah, before they arrive, after they've gone. 
Yeah, and, and actually, you could do a little bit of flirting and and simmering during that time, couldn't you? You could make it really good fun. And that would ease the eggshells that you're currently treading around your mother-in-law. Y- yes, and, and maybe if you make a little plan for your mother-in-law beforehand as well, mm. that would work. I mean, you know, being super nice to her or... Or just rising above it and not taking any notice. What about the last thing, though? What about the kids looking for Santa? How do we stop them? How do we stop them? Well, you can't stop the kids from looking for Santa. It's, you know, they all do it, don't they? But I I guess wear them out during the day and, in fact, wear the in-laws out as well. What about an 11-mile hike? (laughs) Brilliant. Excellent. (laughs) To be fair, that would work. Mm. Fantastic. Good luck, Susan. Good luck, Susan, (laughs) and enjoy your sex. Right, we have another one here from Chloe, and Chloe asks, Christmas theme today, Xmas theme today, (laughs) how do you do a kiss under the mistletoe? How do you do it? Well, yeah, it says, how do you do a kiss under right. the mistletoe? Well, I guess it depends on who you're kissing. So at the moment, if it is not your partner or somebody you live with, you shouldn't really be kissing them under the mistletoe anyway. Oh, I forgot about that yeah. element to it, of course. So, that's, so that makes it really, really, really difficult. Mm. But I think it does depend on, on who you're kissing. I mean, a lot of people do kiss everybody under the mistletoe. They, If they're standing under mistletoe, they'll just kiss everybody. And some people are very opportunistic about this and we'll move in for a proper snog when it's really not appropriate Mm. so um so I, i think you just have to be aware of that and aware of where you're standing and and there is no rule about this so you so you you kiss your partner passionately i guess or somebody that you're hoping to develop a relationship with but not your uncle or um anything like that or somebody that um you really don't like also, there's no rule. You, I mean, if mistletoe actually doesn't mean anything, you don't have to kiss them if you're accidentally caught under a you know novelty plastic leaf. Um, yeah, you do. I think to hell with mistletoe. Oh. Although, having said that, every time I understand it, I'm well up for it. I'm well up for a kiss under the mistletoe. But yeah, I just feel like, you know, I feel like that's dead now. No more kissing under the mistletoe. It feels a bit weird. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. Probably just don't hang mistletoe this year. Mm, exactly. You, I mean, it looks very nice, actually, if you put it in a jug and stand it up and put it, you know, as a yeah, decoration. Yeah, or hang it against a wall, but not under a door frame. Yeah, I mean, people would lean against a wall if they're determined. This is an easy way to find out who's creepy in your family is put mistletoe against a wall and then find out who's leaning against it. OK, I think we know who's creepy in our family, don't we? Fantastic. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to Hannah Whitten for coming onto the podcast and speaking to us. Yeah, it's been, an, it, that was such a joy. It was wonderful. Thank you to resident sexpert Kate Campbell for all her expertise. Thanks, Mum. Thank you, Diggs. And thank you for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. We will be taking somewhat of a hiatus over the next few weeks before we return full throttle in the new year. But keep an eye on your feed as Santa may have some real sex education podcasts cast-shaped presence in his sack. Until then, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And a happy new year. Goodbye. Say bye then. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Gamble. The show is produced by Diggory Waite and the executive producer is Andy Goddard. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson. 